Turn in your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel chapter number 19. I kind of just want to keep exhorting you, but I, God give me a message, so I guess I better preach it, lest I disobey the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter number 19. I'd like to read just a few scriptures to you, and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Give you a little idea of what's happening. David has been in exile, running from Absalom, his son, who has instituted a coup and wrestled the throne away from him. But the Lord has delivered David's enemies into his hand once again. And Absalom is now dead. And David is now coming back to Jerusalem. And uh, the son of David will one day come back to Jerusalem, by the way. David is coming back to Jerusalem. And he's met by a familiar face to him. And somebody that I bet you know in Scripture as well. The Bible says in verse 24 that Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And then neither dressed his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came again in peace. And it came to pass when he was come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said unto him, Wherefore wentest not thou with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant, that's Ziba, my servant deceived me. For thy servant said, I will saddle me an ass that I may ride thereon, and go to the king, because thy servant is lame. And he hath slandered thy servant unto my lord the king. But my lord the king is as an angel of God. Do therefore what is good in thine eyes. For all of my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet didst thou set thy servant among them that did eat at thine own table. What right therefore have I yet to cry any more unto the king? And the king said unto him, Why speakest thou any more of thy matters? I have said, Thou and Ziba divide the land. Mephibosheth said unto the king, Yea, let him take all, for as much as my lord the king is come again in peace unto his own house. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. It's so sweet to be in your house. Lord, I, I, I'm thankful for your people. I'm thankful for the good songs that we've sang and the testimonies and the fellowship, but it wouldn't mean a thing without you. Lord, you're what makes it sweet. And you're what makes it precious. And I just want to praise you this morning for being in this place and that you would grace us with your presence and move and stir in this place already. Lord, it's obvious that it ain't me because I've not done anything. Lord, it's been you that's done it all already. And Lord, we commit unto your care the rest of this service. I don't know the heart's condition of any person in this room, but I know that you know their heart and I know that you love them and you died for them. I know that you know where they're at in their life and what their spiritual condition is. So, Lord, I pray and I trust to your care the working of their heart and their life this morning in the preaching. Lord, if they're lost, show them that they are lost. Convict them. Lay conviction heavy and deep upon them, Lord. Not that they might be miserable, but that they might, through that conviction, turn to you. Lord, I pray that they would come to you before it's everlasting too late. Now, bless the preaching this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I love the story of Mephibosheth. He is one of my favorite characters in the entirety of the Word of God. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, who was a precious friend to David. And he is the grandson of Saul, who was a perpetual foe to David. David, after being established on the throne, and his enemies having been destroyed around him, it enters into his heart to show the kindness of God to someone. And so he calls for a man by the name of Ziba. Ziba is a servant of Saul. 
And he asked Ziba whether there are any that are left of the household of Saul so that he can show the kindness of God unto them. Ziba says, well, there is one left. There is a young man. He is the grandson of Saul. He is the son of your dear friend Jonathan. And he lives in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar was a desolate area. It was a barren area. In fact, the name Lodabar means the house of no bread. He's dwelling down there in the house of a man by the name of Makir. He is impoverished. He is helpless. He is hopeless. He is vulnerable. And he's the exact candidate for the kindness of God. And so David sends Ziba down to Lodabar, loads Mephibosheth up because, you know, a lame man can't carry himself. So he loads Mephibosheth up and brings him up to Jerusalem and restores to him the household or the riches of Saul and the land that had belonged to Saul personally, makes Ziba no longer David's servant, but makes him Mephibosheth's servant, commands Ziba and his sons and his servants to till Saul's land, to bring in revenue and to bring in money and to bring in riches unto Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth won't have to eat any of that food because Mephibosheth will be given a place at David's table. He will live there as one of the king's sons and he will eat at the king's table and he will be brought into the family of the king of Israel. Well, Mephibosheth, not much is said about him between 2 Samuel 9 and here. But here we find David returning from his battle against Absalom or Joab's battle against Absalom and he's returning back to his kingdom. And the Bible says that Mephibosheth meets him and has this interaction and this conversation with him. Now you say, well, preacher, that's interesting, and I appreciate the little history lesson, but what does that teach me, and how does that apply to my life? Well, if I could use one word to describe the story of Mephibosheth, it would probably be this word, the word grace. Mephibosheth's entire life and entire story is a story of grace. David says, I want to show the kindness of God. Hey, that's a good definition for grace right there. The kindness of God. You know why I'm saved this morning? Because God was kind to me. You know why I'm part of the family of God this morning? Because God was kind to me. It's not because I earned it or labored for it or worked for it. It's not because I made Him promises. It's not because I was a good investment. But it's because God, out of His mercy, out of His kindness, out of His grace, He saved me. And when I read the story of Mephibosheth, I cannot help but see woven throughout his story this concept of the grace of God. You see, David reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mephibosheth reminds me of the lost, broken sinner. He is hopeless and helpless, impoverished and undesired, down in a place of no bread, in a place of no sustenance, in a place of no satisfaction. But then here comes word from the king that by the king's grace, he can be restored and brought into a relationship. Hey, it reminds me of exactly what God did for me. Say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, let me give you some examples. Number one, I would say this. Mephibosheth was rescued by grace. 
He was in a place with no resources and a place with no hope. And the Bible says this uh, in Second uh, Samuel chapter number 9, verse 3. The king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent, and I like this, Good King James Bible word. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Hey, listen, uh, the king wretched down into the pit of Lodabar. And when uh, Mephibosheth could not rescue himself, when he could not help himself, when he could not save himself, when he could not move himself, the king sent the cart of grace down, uh, rolling down the cobblestone streets of Lodabar and pulled up outside the house of Mephibosheth and rung the doorbell. I know they didn't have doorbells. Rung the doorbell and said, Mephibosheth, grace is here to pick you up. Man, that's exactly what God did for me. I know I've heard people talk about, well, I was looking for the Lord and found Him, but I'm going to be honest with you, most of us weren't looking for God when He found us. And we made the free will volitional choice. I'm not implying that He somehow against our will or without our agency saved us. But if you'll be honest, you probably didn't have enough sense to be looking for God when God found you. You say, preacher, what happened? He didn't just find you, He fetched you and brought you and rescued you. He was rescued by grace. But then the Bible says in verse 7 that whenever Mephibosheth appears before David, he falls down as one dead. He's terrified and he's scared that David has brought him there to behead him. But David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. And thou shalt eat bread at my table Continually, Not only was he rescued by grace, he was restored by grace. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, everything he had lost, and it's an interesting story. Uh, you look at how this happened to Mephibosheth. He was not born crippled. In fact, the Bible describes exactly how he became crippled. Uh, in Second Samuel chapter 4, whenever news gets to the house of Saul, that Saul, his grandfather, and Jonathan, his father, have been slain, then the house of Saul fled. They were afraid because they thought somebody's going to come in and kill us and destroy us. And the Bible says that a, a maiden, a servant, was carrying Mephibosheth and Whenever she was running, she tripped and she fell and he fell to the ground and he was wounded in the fall. He was crippled in the fall, never to be the same after the fall. Man, what a picture that is of humanity. We also were crippled in a fall. We also were wounded in a fall. We also were lost in a fall. It was not the fall of a maidservant, but it was the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We were scooped in of no choice of our own, but by then of us being descendants of Adam and Eve, we likewise were caught up in a fall. And he had lost everything in that fall. He lost his position. He lost his prosperity. He lost his privilege. He lost everything in that fall. But here, by the grace of King David, he has restored back everything that was lost in the fall. He got it all back. Hey, let me go a step further. He didn't just get back what he lost in the fall. He got back more than he lost in the fall. 
Ziba had been the servant of Saul. Hey, David had not been a kind master to Mephibosheth. And as we'll see later on in this passage, because of the grace of King David, one of the things that Mephibosheth values most of all is the love and care of David in his life. He didn't have that before uh, the king restored him. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying I got more back through Christ than I lost in Adam. I've got something better than Adam ever had. I was restored back to the place that God desired for humanity and even beyond that through the grace of God. He was rescued by grace. He was restored by grace. But then verse 11 of 2 Samuel 9 says this, As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. He was royalty by grace. He wasn't just given back his lands and his title. He was made part of the king's family by the grace of of King David. Man, what a picture that is. So likewise, you and I, broken, battered, helpless, hopeless, get to sit at a king's table by his grace. Uh, think about it for a moment that you, and one of the songs that always moves me, uh, the songwriter said that I, a child of hell, should in his image shine. That you and I, hey, listen, uh, that, that as many as received him to them gave you power, uh, that they might become the sons of God. Has it ever occurred to you what a remarkable miracle it is that we should be called the sons of God? Listen, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. John said the thing that marvels me about God's love is not the great price of Calvary, but it's the great privilege of the Christian that we should be a child of God. He was royalty by grace. But then when I read this passage, and I'll I'll be the first to admit to you, I don't know a lot about Mephibosheth before he meets David. I know who he was. I know who his family was. I know how he became crippled. But I've got to imagine, when I look at how all the other people around him behave, and then look at how he received King David here in our text in 2 Samuel 19, I've got to suggest this to you. He was rescued by grace. He was restored by grace. He was royalty by grace. But I'm going to say this morning, he was also renovated by grace. So what do you mean, preacher? The grace of God transformed Mephibosheth. He is not the man he used to be. There are things that are similar. He is still a cripple. His name is still Mephibosheth. He still has some of his family ties and associations. But obviously the man that approaches David in 2 Samuel 19 is a completely different man from the man that was found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Or should I say fetched? I would say this to you this morning. In Mephibosheth's life, in verse, or in chapter number nine of Second Samuel, we see the elevation of grace. But in chapter 19, we see the transformation of grace. And I want to preach to you this morning on that thought, the transformation of grace. Say, so, preacher, does the grace of God change people? Well, it should. It should. Listen to what Paul said in Titus chapter number 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. 
Paul says the grace of God teaches us some things. The grace of God transforms us in some things. And the grace of God testifies of some things in our life. This word grace is bandied about quite a bit today. You get on social media or you look uh, even at the news and the media, you'll find people talk all the time about grace. Sometimes they'll even talk about the grace of God. But I'd suggest to you this morning, there's a lot of things they call grace that are not grace. And I would say to you this morning, there's a lot of things that they allow as grace uh, that are not truly grace. Hey, grace is not license. Grace is liberty. Grace is not an excuse. Hey, listen, uh, grace is is an elevation. It's an exaltation. Grace is not something that provides us some excuse to behave poorly. Grace is something that empowers us to live more godly. And in Mephibosheth's life, we see him completely transformed by the grace that was shown unto him. I want you to notice four ways that it changed him. Look back at our text with us. The Bible says in verse 24, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and had neither dressed his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes, from the day the king departed until the day he came again in peace. What did the grace of God teach Mephibosheth about David? It taught him this truth, that David could be depended on. That David was the true and rightful king. That that throne that sat in Jerusalem belonged to David and to no one else. And so when David was cast out of his kingdom and was exiled from Jerusalem, Mephibosheth knew in his heart of hearts that David was the rightful king and that sooner or later God would bring the rightful king back to sit upon the throne in Jerusalem. And so he wasn't going to go on living as though the king was gone forever. He was going to live like the king was only gone for a little while because the king was coming back soon. I'd say this, number one, grace gave him a hopeful heart. It gave him cause to believe in David. It gave him cause to believe David was coming back. It gave him cause to believe that the enemies of the Lord would not prevail forever. It gave him cause to believe that righteousness and justice would return to the throne and would reign in authority sooner rather than later. Notice two things about this hopeful heart he had. Number one, notice how it transformed him. The Bible says that when Mephibosheth comes down to meet him, he had neither dressed his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes. Now, what exactly is it that Mephibosheth is seeking to communicate through this? I don't believe that he just thought that poor hygiene would be good for the morale of the kingdom. I don't think he thought to himself, well, I'm just in a funk and depression. I don't feel like getting up and showering or shaving or brushing my teeth. I don't think that's what Mephibosheth was doing. I think what he was doing is he had pledged within his heart, believing and trusting that it would not be very long until the king came back, that he wasn't going to go on living like the king was there when the king wasn't there. He wasn't going to go on pretending like everything was all right when everything was not all right. He wasn't going to go on like the rest in the kingdom and pretend that the pretender on the throne wasn't a pretender in the first place. So here's what he said. Everybody else is going to go on and act like Absalom's really the king. Everybody else is going to go on and pretend like everything's fine. But I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb and I'm going to make sure by my very presence at court that I am a reminder to Absalom that he is not the true authority in this kingdom, that he is not the real king, that he's a pretender on the throne. I ain't just going to try to fit in. I'm going to try to stick out. You know, grace of God, one of the things that it does is it makes us different. 
You know why? Because this world is not steeped in grace. I understand that Christ tasted death for every man. I'm aware that the grace of God is extended to each and every person in this world. But you understand this world is living in abject rejection of God's grace. It's living in rebellion against its true authority. There is the God of this world, Satan, that sits on the thrones of this world. But they are in rebellion against the God of the universe who is the rightful authority. And when the grace of God takes root in our life, you know one of the things that it does? It makes us to where we don't just want to fit in with this world. Instead, we want to live and do honor to the king that is legitimate. And that's what Mephibosheth is doing. I see how it transformed him. Notice number two, how it sustained him. The Bible says in verse number 24 that he had neither dressed his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes. From the day the king departed until the day he came again in peace. In other words, he didn't give out and he didn't give up. The hope he had in his heart outlasted the pretender that was on the throne. Can I say one of the wonderful, glorious things about being a child of God is that we are given a lively hope. It's not a static hope. It's not a reservoir of hope that will hopefully outlast our sojourn in this world. It is a lively hope that is strengthened daily with strength in the inner man by the renewing of our mind. And I can imagine to myself that Mephibosheth, as he has vowed and committed to himself that he's not going to go on living like nothing has changed. He's not going to go on living as though the person on the throne is the rightful king. I'm sure that grew more difficult as the days went on. I'm sure if you've ever been in a hunting camp with a bunch of guys, it gets difficult the further on you get. If you've ever been to church camp, it gets more difficult the later in the week. Amen. And I'm sure that as he is committing himself to this different behavior, I'm sure there's times it was difficult. I'm sure there's times it was inconvenient. I'm sure there's times it was embarrassing. I'm sure there's people that saw Mephibosheth, didn't know why he was living the way he was living, and assumed the wrong thing about him. But Mephibosheth, confident that the king is returning soon, refuses to break this vow and maintains a steady, lively hope day by day that the king was just moments from cresting the top of the hill and returning back to the throne. Hey, listen, our hope, and this is why we can't lose hope. We can't lose hope. Our hope is what sustains us. Our hope is what gives us our smile and gives us our joy and gives us our song. And when I say hope, I don't just mean general effervescence. I don't mean just general buoyancy of disposition. But when I say hope, I mean the excitement and anticipation we have of the Lord's coming. It's one of the things that changes us and transforms us is waiting and anticipating His soon return and living and waiting uh, that we might be found pleasing unto Him when He does. I see his transformation. I see how it transformed him and sustained him. Grace gave him a hopeful heart. But I want you to notice a second thought here. Look at verse 25. The Bible says, And it came to pass, when he was come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said unto him, Wherefore winnest not thou with me, Mephibosheth? Now let's pause there and give a little backstory. We find that whenever David is driven out of Jerusalem, that Mephibosheth, and he explains this here in a moment, But he goes to Ziba, his servant, and he says, I want you to to get me a horse, get me a donkey. I want you to prepare me a saddle. I want to follow the king. I want to go with the king. 
Ziba says, I'll sure do it. Yes, sir. But Ziba had ulterior motives. Ziba thought that if Absalom assumed the throne, if for no other reason than simply to hurt David, that he might find favor with Absalom. Not only that, he assumed too that if there are multiple people that are contending for the throne, it might be one of the sons of Saul will wind up on the throne. But Ziba is thinking that this chaos is an opportunity. And so he goes to Mephibosheth and, uh, or Mephibosheth comes to him and says, I want you to saddle me an ass and prepare a saddle and, and we're going to go. Ziba says, I'll absolutely do it. And he turns around and he walks out and he just simply leaves. To hedge his chances, he goes whenever David is returning and he meets David returning. Ziba does. And David looks at him and says, where's your master, Mephibosheth? And he says, well, Mephibosheth thought that this day he could restore, be restored to the house of Saul. And so he has, uh, trade, uh, he has betrayed you, David, and he has turned his back on you. And Ziba lied about him and slandered him to King David. Whenever David returns and talks to Mephibosheth, he asks him a natural question. Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? And this is what Mephibosheth answered. He answered, my lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For thy servant, meaning Mephibosheth, said, I will saddle me an ass that I may ride thereon and go to the king, because thy servant is lame. And he hath slandered thy servant unto my lord the king. But my lord the king is as an angel of God. Do therefore what is good in thine eye. So in other words, Mephibosheth looks at it and he says, I've been done wrong by somebody, but I will not misplace that anger onto the king. I would say it this way. Grace gave him a hopeful heart, but grace gave him a faithful focus. You know, one of the things grace does, it makes you faithful. I don't just mean faithful to church. I don't just mean faithful to your responsibilities. I don't just mean faithful to your Bible reading and faithful to your prayer closet. You see, part of the trouble is we try to become faithful to those things without being faithful to Christ. If you'll become faithful to Christ, then it'll make you faithful to those other things. And often where there is a disparity in someone's life, they might be faithful to go to church, but they never read their Bible. They might be faithful to pray, but they never go to the house of God. They might be faithful to read their their Bible, but they're never faithful to witness. It's because they have cultivated a faithfulness to one of those activities without a faithfulness to Christ. Because the same Christ that tells you to read your Bible tells you to go to church. Same Christ that tells you to go to church tells you to pray. Same Christ that tells you to pray tells you to preach the gospel to every creature. But you see, Mephibosheth, he had the right of it. He understood that faithfulness is rooted in a fealty and loyalty to an individual and to a person. And he didn't break faith with King David. Notice two things here. Number one, I want you to see that he was wronged by a friend. We often think of Ziba as a nefarious character, or I do when I read my Bible, but that's probably not altogether fair. He is obviously a deceptive, manipulative person. He obviously is a person that is self-interested. But there's no reason to believe that there was necessarily animosity between Mephibosheth and Ziba. Hey, in fact, let me say this. Mephibosheth would have never got to Jerusalem if Ziba hadn't spoken his name in the first place. And Ziba is a friend to Mephibosheth, but he betrays Mephibosheth in the deepest and most sinister way. In other words, I would say it this way. Hey, sometimes people are going to hurt you. Sometimes people you love are going to hurt you. Sometimes people that maybe even had a hand in you coming to know the king are going to hurt you. Sometimes people that you thought would have never hurt you will hurt you. He was wronged by a friend. But you know what I like about him? Though he was wronged by a friend, he remained faithful. Verse 24 or verse 27, I like what he says. He says, but my Lord the King is as an angel of God. Do therefore what is good in thine eyes. 
He says, I know there's some people that have done me wrong, but no one's ever done me as right as David has. I know there's people that have hurt me, but nobody's ever helped me like David has helped me. I know there's some people that might loathe me, but nobody's ever loved me the way that David loves me. You know, one of the things that grace will do, it will galvanize in your heart and mind the goodness of God. And it will cultivate a faithfulness in you because you recognize that no matter how other people have disappointed you, that's no excuse to disappoint God. No matter how people have disappointed you, that's no excuse to disappoint God. David, uh, Mephibosheth could have easily said, well, I I was freed of my oath and my responsibilities to you, but he understood this was Ziba's doing and not David's. And can I say, there's been lots of people probably hurt you in life, but none of them have been Jesus. There's probably been lots of people disappoint you, but none of them have been the Lord. And so in as much as we have a right appreciation of God's grace and what He's done in our life, it helps us to remain faithful to Him. It gave Him a faithful focus. But then I like verse 28. So one of the interesting things a little earlier before we read our verse here is whenever Ziba comes to David and says, Mephibosheth has betrayed you, he is seeking to be restored to the house of, uh, uh, to see the house of Saul restored to the throne of Israel, David makes a knee-jerk decision. And instead of investigating the matter, David says, well, I'll tell you what, everything that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. He, he's disinherited. I have no part in him. Whenever Mephibosheth tells him the right of the situation, David does something that is interesting. I would say this, that probably in as much as David is a human being, probably this is not a good decision on David's part. Would have probably been better for him to take Ziba's head off of his shoulders. Of course, let me say this, it'd probably be better for God to take most of our heads off our shoulders. But David instead makes a compromise. Here's what he says. Verse number 28, the Bible says, For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet didst thou set thy servant among them that did eat at thine own table. What right, therefore, have I yet to cry any more unto the king? And the king said unto him, Why speakest thou any more of thy matters? I have said, Thou and Ziba divide the land. So evidently David feels like the reason Mephibosheth is saying all this is because he is hoping to ingratiate himself unto David and to get some of the land Back, But you know what I like that Mephibosheth says in verse 28? He says, what right, therefore, have I yet to cry any more unto the king? He says, I'm not coming asking you for something, David. I'm just coming because I love you and because you're precious to me. I would say this, grace gave him not only a hopeful heart and a faithful focus, but it gave him a grateful spirit. He doesn't feel entitled. He doesn't feel like he's owed anything. He's just happy to be a part of the king's house. He's just blown away that he would be able to share in David's family. Notice his concept of grace in verse 28. I like this. All of my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Now, he doesn't say most. He says all. This coincides with Mephibosheth's language in chapter 9 because when he comes and, 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 and meets David for the first time, he, he falls down at his feet, and this is what he says to him. I am a dead dog before you. He says, what is thy servant but a dead dog? Mephibosheth, one of the wisest things he ever did is recognize that not all living is living. And that when he was down in Lodabar, though he may have drawn breaths and though his heart may have pumped blood, he was not living. And he says, I was just a dead man. I was nothing. I was nobody. I was living down in Lodabar dead. And let me say this, that every every sinner is both dead and dying. 
In fact, I would say this, they are both dead and dying and dying. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, we're all dying. We are all uh, headed towards decomposition. We are all uh, have less time than we had before. And that's true for the lost person. But then I would say this, the lost person is dead in their trespasses and sins. They have no life within them. But then I would even go a step further and say this, they are in an active state of spiritually dying day in and day out. It's not progressive in nature, although sometimes it can be in a person's life. But the same way they'll spend an eternity in hell, ever dying but never dead, always dead but never dying. So likewise, the lost man lives in the world today. Though he may draw a breath, though his heart may beat, he is dead and he is in an active state of dying at all times. Mephibosheth said, that's who I was. That's what I was. Yet didst thou set thy servant among them that did eat at thine own table. He said, you took me from as low as a man could be and brought me to as high a place as a man could occupy. You didn't just build me a nicer house in Lodabal. You didn't just buy me better shoes in Lodabal. You didn't just fix me better meals in Lodabal. You came down and plucked me out of Lodabal. And you didn't just bring me halfway and leave me somewhere out in the countryside. You didn't just get me halfway and say, now by your good works, walk the rest of the way. Hey, listen, a lame man can't walk. So he said, because you cannot do it for yourself, Mephibosheth, I'll do it for you. And he picked him up and hoisted him and carried him all the way back to Jerusalem. But he didn't just bring him inside the gate. He didn't just bring him inside the walls. He didn't just bring him inside the palace. He brought him to the very table and gave him a place. When Mephibosheth thought of David, that's what he thought about. You know, a lot of what's broken about our Christianity is when we think about Jesus, we don't think about that. We think about a lot of other things. We think about the rules that Christian living puts in our life. We think about the things back in Egypt that we left behind that tasted better in our memory than they tasted when we were back there. We we, we contemplate on a lot of different things. We contemplate on the next thing we want Him to give us or to do for us. But we lose sight of what he did when he saved us. Mephibosheth, you know why he loves David more today than he did in chapter number 9? Because he never lost sight of what David had done for him. David had fed him a lot of meals between chapter 9 and chapter 19, but that ain't what he's talking about. David had met a lot of needs between chapter 9 and chapter number 19, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what David had done when he rescued him, restored him, made him royalty. And changed his life. I love his concept of grace. And then I love his contentment with grace. What right therefore have I yet to cry anymore unto the king? That is what's called a rhetorical question. Mephibosheth would have said, uh, none. None. Now let's stop and think about that for a moment. Did David want Mephibosheth to never need him? I don't think so. Do you think David would have begrudged Mephibosheth if he had come to him and, and said... Father, I have need of this or I have need of that. No, I think I think David would have delighted in meeting Mephibosheth's needs. I don't think Mephibosheth is saying, I'll never cry to you again. I think what he is saying is, I have no right to charge you for what has happened. I have no right to slander you for what has happened. I have no right to feel aggrieved. Child of God, you have no right to feel aggrieved. 
We talk all the time about this victim culture in society today. But can I tell you, Bible Christianity has the answer to the victimhood mentality. It's the grace of God. Because let me tell you, once you understand the grace of God, you will understand that whatever may have happened to you in your life is far less than what your sins deserve. And that what you have in Jesus Christ far outstrips and outweighs and outpaces anything that this world has done for you. Grace puts into a proper perspective all of life surrounding us and causes us to have a grateful spirit. I see that it gave him a grateful spirit. And then finally, once you notice one final thing and then I'm done, grace gave him an eternal perspective. <laughs> David said to him, verse 29, Why speakest thou any more of thy matters? I have said thou and Zeba divide the land. Now, I want you to stop and think about it. His wealth was halved in that statement. How would you feel, may happen one of these days, if you went to the bank and found out the government had took half of your wealth? By the way, they do that every year. But I mean half of the half of the third of the quarter that they still leave you. Imagine what that would feel like. What if somebody came and built a wall halfway through your home, said this is ours now, you can't come in this side. Mephibosheth had lost half of what he had. And Mephibosheth said unto the king, Yea, let him take all. Let him have. Let him take all. Why would he say that? Here's why. For as much as my lord the king has come again in peace unto his own house. I see his sudden poverty. He loses half of what he has. And by the way, can I just say this? If Zeba's spending his time tilling his lands, he's not spending his time tilling Mephibosheth's land. And likely, whatever land he was still left, he had no one to work it anymore anyway. So though he has lost half, he has effectively lost everything. His sudden poverty, in a moment, it's all gone. Do you know in a moment it could all be gone? We say that a lot, don't we? I mean, everybody would say that. And when I said it, you all agreed with it. But stop and think about that. There, there could be heaven help, and, and, and Lord knows I ain't got no crystal ball. But you understand, you could be sitting here at church today, and your house in flames right now. You understand, you could be sitting here right now, and before you pull into your driveway, have some medical event that takes every bit of the wealth that you have. You understand, you could leave out of here and, and, and head out, and, and somebody cross a double yellow line, and all of a sudden your family be without any provider in their life. Some of y'all are going to get nervous. <laughs> it could all be gone in a moment. And then what will you have? Mephibosheth had the right of it. Because he said, let him take all. For as much as my Lord, the king, has come again in peace unto his own house. I see not only his sudden poverty, I see his singular priority. He says, as long as I have David, I have all that I need. I don't need the land, I have the Lord. I don't need the wealth, I have the king. I don't need the farm, I've got a father. I don't need any of those things because in him I have everything I could ever possibly need. You know, one of the things grace does for you is it gives you an eternal perspective. It reminds you that this world is passing away. And when it does, so will the lusts of the world. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now, what does that mean? There's all kinds of Christians don't do the will of God. 
Are they going to live forever? Well, certainly they are. Are they going to live forever with Christ? Well, certainly they are. I don't believe salvation by works. I believe salvation by grace. So why does it say, He that doeth the will of God abideth forever? Saying the things He does abide forever. Saying you can do a lot of things in this world, but this world passeth away in the lust thereof. But if you invest in the things of God, you're investing in eternal matters. You know what Christ was doing when He died on the cross of Calvary? He was investing in eternal matters. You know what the Father was doing when He sent His Son to die for you and I? He was investing in eternal matters. Isaiah 53 said that He would see His seed and, and, and would be pleased. That He would seed the product of what, of what Calvary was and He would be pleased. And you know one of the things that grace does, it gets our eyes off of this world and on the world to come. Somebody will say, preacher, that's fascinating. But what about all these Christians that don't do that? Have they not been saved? Well, I, I'm a believer in eternal security. I'm not a believer in eternal anxiety. I'm a believer in eternal security. I believe in security. I don't believe in insecurity. I believe that God's promises hold. I believe when God saves a man, he's sealed under the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit of promise. And I believe we are kept by the power of God under the day of redemption. I, to me, there's no room for any other belief if we're going to be a Bible believer. So what about these Christians that get saved and they never live for the Lord? And grace does not seem to transform them. You know that Peter talked about these people? Here's what he said in Second Peter chapter number 1. He said, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Number one, that tells me this, grace can be multiplied. It tells me that I, I, may, I may have tasted of the grace of God and I'm saved by the grace of God and I'm sealed by the grace of God, but the grace of God can live larger in my life. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. That sounds like grace, doesn't it? It doesn't say He's paid us. It says He's given us those things through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. That word promise is another word of grace. Because when a person promises, they're making a pledge, a commitment. If it's not contingent upon what you do, then it's a promise of grace. That by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's almost a definition of grace and what grace does. He says, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we ought to be. But notice he said, if. Tells me there's a possibility that I can be made partaker of all these things, but these things not be abounding in me. What does that mean? Well, here's what he says. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. You say, there it is, preacher. That's a lost man. No, look what he says. And hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Say, preacher, what about all these people that are saved by the grace of God? But grace has not transformed them. Well, grace is transformative. But it only transforms our life in as much as we dwell in the grace of God and live in the grace of God and embrace the grace of God day by day. 
Now, my salvation is not contingent upon me holding in, holding out, holding up, or holding on. It's contingent upon what God has said and what God has done. But if I want the grace of God to transform me, then I can't take the grace of God and file it away on a bookshelf and forget about it. I've instead got to keep it at the forefront of my mind. There's a great many Christians that struggle with these things. I struggle sometimes. And you know, invariably, unfailingly, it's because I lose sight of the grace of God. You know why Mephibosheth was the way he was when David returned? He never lost sight of the grace of the king. He's still talking about it in chapter 19. I don't know how much time has passed. Years have passed since that had happened. But he's still talking about it. So here's the question I have for you. Which of these things is lacking in your life? Is it a hopeful heart? Is it a faithful focus? Is it a grateful spirit? Is it an eternal perspective? Here's what can remedy that. The grace of God. And here's how you can go about remedying it. You can find a place on this altar, talk to the Lord, thank Him for what He did when He saved you, and ask Him to keep at the forefront of your mind these things and to help you to more presently, day in and day out, live and walk in the strength of them. Let's bow together this morning. As a musician comes to play, the altar's open. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. You can meet the Lord in the altar right now. Has the grace of God been multiplied in your life? I'm not asking if you're saved. I trust you are. I'll ask here in a moment about those that might not be. But if you sit here saved by God's grace today, I know the grace of God is present, but is it multiplied in your life? Is it loud in your life? Is it at the forefront of your life? And let me ask you this, is God's grace showing in your life? If it's not, I invite you to meet him in the altar and let the Lord speak to your heart about that matter. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.